Amen. All right. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you, and you can find 1 Peter chapter 4 on page 955 as we continue in this series, Looking Up When Life is Down. When a soldier goes to battle, at what point should they prepare for the battle? When they're in the midst of it or before they go? Not a trick question. Right, before. They should be prepared. But if they wait until the battle has started, they're already behind. About 10 years ago, I asked Matt Brown, Matt, one of our elder candidates, what it takes to prepare for battle. Why would I ask Matt Brown? Well, glad you asked. He was in active duty for 24 years. He was an aviator qualified to fly on five different aircrafts. I think the coolest of which was the Apache attack helicopter. He was a full board colonel when he was, when he was promoted to a one-star general. That application sat on President Obama's desk for three years along with a whole stack of others, and finally he decided, okay, I'm going to move into the private sector, and he trained the Singapore Air Force how to fly helicopters for a number of years. And so when I asked him, Matt knew what it took to prepare for battle. These are some of the things that he told me, and I wrote these down at the time. I don't know why. He said it takes months of preparation. You need to learn the equipment. You need to learn your weapons. You need to be qualified in using those weapons. He says you need to go through mindset training, how to learn to think on your feet, to respond in action. There's repetition in training. You you need to learn not to panic in the midst of chaos. He says something else that's important. You need to learn to encourage one another. You need to have a game plan. What was interesting is when he rattled all this up off, it wasn't what he said, but it is within the intensity and the, the confidence in which he said it. He understood what it took to go into battle. I mean, that's the kind of person you want to go into battle with. When we get to 1 Peter chapter 4, there's a battle raging around those that are believers in Jesus Christ. They've They found themselves scattered all over Asia Minor, being persecuted, suffering at the hands of Nero. There's a battle for their hearts and minds, but today there's a battle for our hearts and minds. We must be prepared. Peter understood that those that were suffering need to arm themselves for battle. They needed to be prepared. He wants us to be prepared for when it comes. We've talked about this uh, these last couple weeks. In fact, the big idea is this. Suffering is a reality of life. I said that last week, didn't I? Last week I said, don't waste the opportunity it brings. But this week, be prepared for it. Suffering is a reality of life. Be prepared for it. Some of you are thinking, okay, when can we get off the suffering thing? As Christians, like, do we have to talk about suffering? Here's the reality. Suffering. Suffering is a reality. 
It's not just something that happens to a few Christians. We live in a fallen world where suffering is a part of life. And so as Christians, we need to be prepared. And what I'm so thankful for, I was thinking about this this morning as I was praying. This passage, this whole book is God's grace to us. He's not making us figure it out. He's preparing us. He's showing us the truth of how we can be prepared, how we can arm ourselves for suffering. Let me ask you, are you prepared? Let's read this passage starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This passage is at the heart of Peter's encouragement to the church to endure, to deal with suffering. So the question I want to answer today is this. How do we arm ourselves for suffering? How do we arm ourselves for suffering? Well, first, embrace three gospel commitments. Embrace three gospel commitments. Notice again verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. When he says, since, therefore, the therefore reminds us to go back and see what it is there for. And what he's doing is he's pointing us back to chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. He says in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, which, uh, but made alive in the spirit. As I said last week, that is known to be the the shortest, most concise picture of the gospel, of the purpose of the cross. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he suffered in the flesh on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Three gospel commitments. Here's the first one. Think like Jesus. Think like Jesus. He says, arm yourselves with the same thinking. With the same way of thinking. The same way of thinking that Jesus thought as he was going to the cross. His suffering had a purpose. It had a goal. We see that in verse 18. That he might bring us to God. Now, our suffering may not bring other people to God, but our suffering can be used if we allow it. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that as believers, we have the mind of Christ. 
In Philippians 2.5, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's reminding us to develop the mental disposition of Jesus regarding suffering. We're told in, in Romans chapter 12 to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our what? The renewing of our minds. He's saying, think like Jesus. Let me ask you, when do you think like Jesus? Or are there times where you should be thinking like Jesus and you don't? That word think, it means to have an attitude, a purpose, a resolve. The, the, he, when he says arm, it's, it's a military term. It refers to a soldier taking up weapons in preparation for battle. We see that in, in Ephesians chapter 6 where, where Paul is telling us to do all that we can to stand. Four different times he uses that word to stand or to withstand. He says, because we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in this present age. And we need to put on the full armor of God. Peter is now, he's repeating that same type of mindset. There's a battle out there. We have to be prepared. It's not just the battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. How do we arm ourselves with the same kind of thinking, with the thinking of Jesus? Well, I think there's no other way than spending time with him. We can't think with him if we're not with him. That's why, that's why um, Psalm 27, 8 says, You have said, O Lord, seek my face. So your face, O Lord, do I seek. It's the idea of being with him, spending time with him. You've, you've heard me say it over and over again about Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where it says that Jesus called his disciples to himself. He went up on the mountain. He called his disciples with himself. Why? To be with him. So that he can send them out. He wants us to be with him. So we're prepared. So our minds are prepared. Our thinking is prepared. We've armed ourselves to go out. In 2001, I started a full-time ministry. I've been a believer for three years. The first funeral I ever did was for a guy named Brett Cowart. Brett was 37 or 38 at the time, had a young wife, three kids, Christian, Jordan, and Hayden, all named after Christian Leitner, basketball player, Michael Jordan, and uh, Hayden Fry, who was a coach of Iowa Hawkeyes, just in case you were wondering, which you probably weren't. Brett got gum cancer. He had chewed tobacco for many years and then quit. He had quit for seven years. And, and Brett had been in a small group of men that we were meeting with. And when he got this, you know, it was clear, and this was so new to me, that Brett, I mean, he'd been a believer a lot longer than me, that he'd been preparing for this time of suffering. His wife, Deb, had been preparing. She'd been in Bible study. They'd been soaking in God's word. And even though that was a horrific time for this family, they'd armed themselves. They didn't wait until the battle came. They were prepared for the battle. The problem is often we don't think like Jesus. We prefer a gospel that, that promises us health and pr promises us wealth if we just do the things that God tells us to do. But that's not 
That's not what the gospel promises us. The gospel promises that Jesus will be with us in the midst of the suffering. It doesn't say that we won't suffer. The fact is we need to remember that we're sojourners in this world. This world is not our home. And so if we've been united with him by faith, we should prepare, be prepared to identify with him in our suffering. We are to arm ourselves in the same way of, of thinking, have the same resolve, the same care with which a soldier puts on their armor ready for battle with an unwavering resolve to do God's will. And again, we saw that verse 17. He says for it is, in chapter 3, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And we are going to have these moments in our lives where we, it, we, we've got to make a choice. And the choice that we make, if it's, if it's following God's will, could be suffering. And he's going to explain that in a minute to us. The Apostle Paul understood this type of thinking. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul just, I mean, he wanted to know him in a way that would, would understand the, the suffering and to be like him in his death, doing the Father's will. But then we see in verse 1, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then he says this, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, how many of you have ever suffered in the flesh? It's okay. Honesty in church is not a bad thing. So does that mean you've ceased from sin? Uh, probably not. Because we will not cease from sin until we are in heaven, until we are glorified. So what... In fact, does that mean? It means that whoever has suffered for doing right and continues to obey God, despite the suffering, has made a break from sin. It means that they're no longer living a life of just unchecked sin, that there's been a change in their life. In fact, Romans chapter 6, 6 and 7 speaks about this. Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, oops, for one who has, we'll fix that. For one who has died has been set free from sin. When we die and go to heaven, we've been set free from sin. When we come to Christ, we are di we've died to our old life and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. And so it's, it's not that we've been set free from, it's, it doesn't mean that we're sinless, but it means now that because of the power of the spirit in us and the change that's taken place, we sin less. And when we do, we confess it and repent now, all this means is you're acting in a way that shows that obeying, a God, obeying God and not avoiding hardship becomes our motivation. You obey God, when you have the mind of Christ, you obey God despite physical or emotional or spiritual costs, which points us to the second gospel commitment. We live for the will of God. Live for the will of God. Look at verse 2. 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. When you resolve in your mind to live like Jesus or to think like Jesus, you resolve to live for the will of God because that's what Jesus did. He, he, he continually said, not my will be done, but yours be done. We saw that in the garden. Peter creates this contrast between human passions and the will of God. He says, so as, so, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. If I'm in Christ, I'm no longer attracted to those human passions that I used to have. I'm now living for the will of God. He sets this incredible contrast. Once again, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It's not just today or tomorrow or next week, but it's for the rest of your life. Peter's speaking of a change of passions. He's been talking about that through the whole letter. In fact, turn back to chapter 1, verse 13 through 17. It's like he's circling back once again because this is so important for us. Notice what he says in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I read that and like, that's my old life in a nutshell. For all those years as an unbeliever, I live by my ignorant passions, unchecked. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter's reminding us that we have a new passion. Obeying the will of God. Moving towards holiness, to be separate, to be set apart. He's speaking of a dramatic change, a change of passage that takes place to those who are walking with Christ. What this means, though, is we're now swimming against the current. We're going against the culture. We don't give in to the spirit of the age. We don't compromise our morality. It means we don't drop the biblical definition of marriage. It means we stand on the definition of a man and a woman. We go back to first, we go back to Genesis chapter one where God created them, male and female. But we have to be careful. It means, though, that we engage the world in a way that attracts the world, not condemns or repels it. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. He's speaking to believers. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, unbelievers. Keep your conduct honorable. 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What happens so often is, is we get this, listen, we, we come to Christ. We understand the truth of God's word. We understand God's will for our lives. We want to live that out. But then all of a sudden we look at everybody else in a way that we just look down our, our, our noses at them and, 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 and we malign them. But the fact is, there's a lot of us that people probably looked at one point in time and said, they will never come to Christ. I will tell you, that's what I think would happen with me and Pam. I mean, we were 40 years old when we, somebody shared the gospel with us. And my guess is most people thought they would never come to Christ. Why would they say that? Because of the way that we lived. Because of the way that we, we, we thought of Christians. Pam and I were at a conference about six years ago at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And a lady named Rosario Butterfield got up in front of 1,900 pastors and church leaders. She shared her story. She wrote a book called Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. While she was speaking, you could hear a pin drop. Rosario Butterfield was head of the women's program at Syracuse University. She was an intellectual. She, she, she was a national voice for gay rights, lesbian rights. And she had written a letter to the local Syracuse newspaper, and it was responded to by a pastor who was very gracious to her. And they actually started this conversation. Rosario said, you know what was interesting? That pastor did something that I've never experienced before. He didn't invite me to church and he didn't try to share Jesus with me. And I'm thinking, that guy ought to be fired. <laughs> and, 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 but, but what she said was, he developed a relationship with me. He answered my questions. He invited us, he invited me to dinner. And over two years of the pastor gently ask, answering her questions, she realized that the lifestyle she was living went completely contrary to God. And she started having an understanding of who God was. She surrendered her life to Christ. You know, one of the things she said is, if you engage somebody in the uh, um, gay and lesbian world, you better be ready to bring them into your home because they've just lost their church, their family. I never forget, Pam and I, a number of years ago, we brought a young man into our, our home who was struggling with that, came alongside him. And see, it's very easy for us to just like wipe the people aside, look down at them in our righteousness. But that's why Peter says in verse 2, chapter 12, chapter 12, or chapter 2, verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on that day of visitation. Listen, 
We need to live for the will of God. We need to think like Jesus, but it means that we are going against the culture. We are going against the grain, but we need to do it in a way that we can attract. We, we never compromise, but we realize that we need to be the aroma of Christ to those that are perishing. Third, third gospel commitment, flee human passions. Flee human passions. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He's saying the time that is past, it suffices. It's sufficient. You know what he's saying? It's like been there, done that, got the T-shirt, not going back again. I mean, it sounds like a frat party, right? I mean, it's like sensuality, passions, drunkenness, or not, not, the, not like any of the students would engage in that here at Hope. Not. But he's saying, listen, if you've sinned a little in the past, that's enough. If you sinned a lot in the past, that's enough. He says... For the time that is past suffices for doing, uh, for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Once again, you see this human passions, what the Gentiles want, all uh, contrary to the will of God. And Peter names six past sins that describe unconverted living. Look at these words, and they all, they all kind of mesh together. Sensuality, it's this extreme indulgence. Essential behavior, passions, that the word is epithumia. It's the same word for lust, strong desire. Actually, it can, can even be used for anger or bitterness or wrath. And then he says drunkenness, drinking to excess, drinking that consumes or controls, orgies. And, uh, and other translations say carousing, revelries, wild parties, drinking parties. And then lawless idolatry. And when I see lawless idolatry, I see that's really the foundation for everything he's just talked about. What's idolatry? It's putting anything before God. It's going after whatever, whatever puts God on the back burner. It could be our work. It could be sports and the love of sports. It could be relationships or shopping or social media or video games or, or family even or position or, or entertainment. Lawless idolatry leads to all kinds of other passions. And the fact is he's saying we need to flee human passions. He says in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for, what, for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here's the problem. Some believers still live that way. The question is, are they really believers? Now, they might be. They've just not turned from their prior sin. They live as if the gospels had no impact on their lives. That Jesus' death on the cross was great. It got them into heaven, but now they're just going to live the way they want to live. God forbid, that would be the way we live. Our human passions, the ways of the Gentiles can manifest in a lot of different ways. 
maybe in our work when a boss asks us to look the other way. Or maybe we overcharge somebody that we shouldn't or maybe cut a corner. You need to arm yourself because if you refuse, you could lose your job. You could be ostracized. You could be ridiculed. How about students? A friend might ask you for answers to a test. Maybe to, to do something against school rules, drugs, drinking, sex. If you refuse, you better arm yourself because you may lose those friends who weren't really friends. Arm yourselves by fleeing human passions and looking to Christ. So we see, first of all, that we're to arm ourselves for suffering by embracing three gospel commitments. But secondly, we need to understand the cost. There will be a cost. We need to understand the cost. Let's go ahead and, there we go. There's a personal cost. The cost may be financial, but certainly it could be personal. Look at verse four. With respect to this, respect to what? Living for human passions, doing the things that the Gentiles want. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Here's what he's saying. People will be surprised at you. It's like, what? People will be surprised. That word surprise, it's astonished. It means to appear strange. All of a sudden, when you start living for the will of God, when you start fleeing human passions, you look strange to the rest of the world. But isn't that okay? We shouldn't look like the world. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Most people, though, want to fit in. They want to be part of the crowd. There can be a strong attraction to that. But when you think like Jesus, when you live for the will of God, when you flee human passions, people will think, what's wrong with you? In fact, you might hear, come on, man, just have a little fun. Live a little. And the more you stand out, the more surprised they will be. And surprise then turns into malign. People will malign you. He says that in verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. And now all of a sudden, it's like, what's wrong with you? Are you too good for us? What are you, some kind of saint? So Pam and I, many of you know, we were in the restaurant business for many years. And so we, and when you're in the restaurant business, there was a lot of partying, a lot of stuff that you see in verse 3. And we come to Christ, and we'd made some friends in Dallas. We'd only lived there for less than a year. And this one couple, Carrie and his wife, I remember one day he said to me, after we come to Christ, he goes, you know, Bill, you and Pam just aren't any fun anymore. And I'm thinking, we're fun. At least she's more fun than I am. But we're fun. It, it bothered me. But then I realized, maybe that's a compliment. What he was saying is, you just don't go out and get drunk with us anymore. You don't do the things that you used to do. But shouldn't that be what happens when we come to Christ? We're different. Not weird. We're just different. We live differently. We love differently. They will malign you. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17, I've already repeated, but let me just put it up again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's such great news. 
People don't like that. In fact, they feel that you're judging them by not par partaking in their, and the word he uses, debauchery. It's a big word, so I looked it up. Wickedness. Wild living. And then all of a sudden, you stop getting invited to some of the parties. They might unfriend you. Oh, darn. That word malign, it, it comes from the word blasphemio. What does that sound like? Blaspheme. It means to revile something that is holy. In Christ, we have been made holy. We are saints. And so they malign us. They blaspheme us. They revile us. In this context, the sacred thing they malign is the believer, the person that's been set apart as holy in an unholy world. The fact is a changed life will provoke hostility from those who reject the gospel. I, I, I was reading this week in The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul tells of a time when Billy Graham was invited to play golf with uh, President Gerald Ford and two PGA professionals. He writes this. After the round of golf was finished, one of the other pros came up to the golfer and asked, hey, what was it like playing with the president and with Billy Graham? The pro unleashed a torrent of cursing and in a disgusted manner said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. With that, he turned on his heel and stormed off, heading for the practice tee. His friend followed. His friend said nothing. He sat on the bench and watched. After a few minutes, the anger of the pro was spent. He settled down. His friend said quietly, was Billy a little rough on you out there? The pro heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, no, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. So Sproul concludes this by this, and I'll put it up here. He goes, astonishing. Billy Graham is so identified with religion, so associated with the things of God, that his very presence is enough to smother the wicked man who flees when no man pursues. Luther was right. The pagan does tremble at the rustling of a leaf. He feels the hound of heaven breathing down his neck. He feels crowded by, the holy, by holiness, even if it is only made present by an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. The fact is, we need to understand the personal cost. Your commitment to Christ, living in a way that glorifies God, will have a cost. But then that leads to this, and this is really an encouragement. Entrust the outcome to God's justice. Entrust the outcome to God's justice. Look at verse 5. But, I mean, what you see in this text is, is, is all these, these uh, um, uh, adversives. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those that malign you, those that treat you in a way that is against godly living, Peter tells them, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The fact is, we live in a world that cries out for justice. 
And if someone wrongs us, we want them to pay a price. When? Right now. And if they don't pay a price right now, then that makes things worse for us. But what we've got to be reminded of is that God is a perfect judge. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. The reality is people will get away with things here on earth. And we might think that justice is not served. But Peter reminds us, and more importantly, he's reminding those people that have been going through tremendous persecution, tremendous suffering, said, listen, it may seem like there is no justice in what you're going through right now, but remain faithful to God because there will be a day (laughs) where at the white throne of judgment, they will be cast into the lake of fire as Revelation 20 tells us. God does have a righteous standard. And if they're not covered by the blood of the lamb, if they've not received Jesus as Lord and Savior, they are facing eternal death. That's what we get focused on at Easter. We know that because of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, we have eternal life. All of a sudden, we're no longer under condemnation, but we are under God's grace. For those that have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we trust in the justice of God. And those who spent their lives in idolatry, in indulgence, in unchecked sin will stand before the Lord. Actually, they'll they'll kneel before the Lord because, because Philippians... Two tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. And the fact is, so often we want justice right now, but we have to trust in the providence of God. When we focus on the gospel and the goodness of of God's grace. All of a sudden, we're not consumed with this present suffering, but we just want to be armed in a way that we can bring glory to God and lead people to Christ. For those that reject Jesus, Romans 6.23 is very clear. Let me just put it up. For the wages of sin is death. We don't want that for anybody. That should, that should be one of those passages that, that so challenges us because we, we should want to tell everybody about Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death. The results of my ongoing unrepentant sin is eternal death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We would want to tell everyone that, listen, there is a way to, to be out under this, this wrath, God's wrath, and that is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now we get to verse 6, and this is a verse that's been debated. debated. Some have used to say, once again, as we talked about yesterday, that, that, or last week, that it, uh, some use it as a, as a second chance to repent after you've died. But that's not what it means. Notice what it says. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In the early church, many 
had questions about their family that had died. They received Christ, but they died. And Peter wanted them to know that those who have accepted the gospel would live forever in the presence of God. Those that repent or those that don't repent, don't put their faith in Christ, spend eternity in hell. So he says, this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There will be a day they will be raised to eternal life. Here's what we learn. Suffering is a reality of life. And the way you prepare, it is, prepare for it is to arm yourself. Arm yourself by committing to think like Jesus. To live for the will of God. To flee your human passions. Knowing that when you do, there will be a personal cost. But that's where you entrust the outcome to God's justice. Jesus died for your redemption. And it's your union with him that reminds you that because he was raised, we will be raised in the final resurrection. But don't wait for the suffering to start. Arm yourself today. Focus on the things of God. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. And I want to do something that I think is just I mean, there are some people in this room that have been going through suffering and going through some hard times. And what I'm going to ask you to do right now is I'm going to ask you to stand. This is a time where I want the church to be the church to pray for those that are going through difficult times. If you're going through a difficult time, if you've been suffering, I'm not going to call anybody out. I'm not going to ask anybody to do anything. I just want you to stand because I want to be able to pray for you and pray with you. So if that's you, I'm going to go ahead and have you stand right now. And I'm thinking that we've got a few people that have been suffering, going through difficult times, don't even know why. We've got one that stood. Anybody else? There we go. Anybody else? One of the things I know is that suffering can be lonely, can be heartbreaking, can be challenging. And we don't want you to suffer alone. We don't want you to feel like you are alone. We want you to know that we have a God of grace who loves you in such a way that he gave his son for you. Suffering is a result of a fallen world that we live in. Christ came to redeem that. Now what I'm going to do is just ask a couple people to put their arms to stand up next to these people that are standing and just put your hands on them and I want to pray for them. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to pray for these people. Father, for those that have, most of whom have embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, maybe have been faithful to you, serving you, 
serving your people. Yet in the midst of it, they're suffering. And for Lord, I just pray that right now you would encourage them in this, knowing that their suffering is not in vain, as we know that Jesus, he suffered, and his suffering was not in vain. His suffering purchased our salvation. And so, Lord, I just pray, even in the midst of what each one of these people have gone through, and you know what it is, Lord, that you would meet them at their point of need. Just reminded of Psalm 20, 23, 4, which says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Why? Because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And, Lord, I, help, I pray that these people would know that Psalm 23, 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not remain in. So, Lord, help bring them out. Help keep them, their eyes on you. Father, we thank you for, for loving us. I pray if there's anyone else here today that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would save them for your glory, for their good. Lord, let me just finish with your words and Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that says, Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. Looking unto Jesus, I pray these people would look unto you, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Father, I pray that these people would look unto you. They would look beyond this momentary suffering and look to you. In Jesus' name I pray.